title of the message is Come Correct. Come Correct. We're still on the series in worship. Psalm 95, verse 6. Psalm 95, verse 6. It says, Come, <clears throat> come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. God help us as we study. The psalmist was trying to do what he could to bring definition to what needs to be done as a result of his exhortations in verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5 talk about the great deeds of God, how God has provided for his people, how magnanimous he has been, how benevolent he has been. He is amazing. As a result, verse 6 comes. This is the response to a God who treats us so well. We're going to talk about four things. One, what it means to organize our response to God. Two, our opening posture when it comes to worship. Three, our ongoing posture when it comes to worshiping God. And four, our posture of offering. He says first, come, come. Sometimes you can't worship God the way he wants to be worshipped where you are. Now, I love the fact that you worship where you are. But growth should be a constant. That you ought to come from one place to another on a regular basis. That if you're at the same spot in your maturity as you were six months ago, six months ago something's wrong. Something's wrong. That growth ought to be constant in your life. And you ought to hear what the psalmist is saying, come closer. He's saying, come into the presence of God. There ought to be a constant beckoning that you hear from the Lord to get closer and closer and closer. Now, you may think you are close to him, but you aren't as close as you should be. You aren't in proximity enough to be able to be changed into his image perfectly yet, and until that happens, you need to continue to get closer and closer and closer and closer. We have no idea. You know, Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your sins have separated you from me. It doesn't say he is separate from us. We have separated ourselves from him because of our sins. We can't get, if there is sin in our life that is unchecked or a sin that we don't even know about that others do, meaning they can see the flaws, we can't, that separates us from the kind of fellowship God wants to have with us. And when we try to get close, we can't get as close as we'd like because our mind and our flesh prohibit us from getting as close as we should be. This allows us the privilege of understanding really how far we are away when we think we are close. I talk with people all the time. Do you know God? Oh, yeah, we tight. We tight. You know, I understand the man upstairs really well. And, uh, you know, we got this thing going on. I'm a really spiritual person. And, like, it's really going. And I feel him all the time. They think they're close. They could not be further away. How close do you think you are? I love him with all of my heart and have worshipped worshiped him without cessation for the last 34 years. And I think I'm close every once in a while till something comes out of my mouth that reminds me I'm not as close as I ought to be. Till an attitude comes up that I didn't think was there but the circumstance revealed it and I say, uh-oh, that's going to stop me from getting where I need to be. So the psalmist says, you got a ways to go. Come. 
Wherever you are, I'm glad for it because it's closer than you used to be. But where you need to come in God, you have to get closer. Where you need to go in God, you got to get closer. The Apostle John. God got the revelation. I mean, the book of Revelation. And, 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 and he also wrote three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then wrote the Gospel of John. Quite a man. Walked with Jesus closely. He's there on the Isle of Patmos. And, and God just shows up in a way he's never seen him before. Now, he walked with Jesus for three, three and a half years. He knew Jesus. But there on the Isle of Patmos, Jesus showed up to him like he'd never seen. He says when he showed up, his face was as bright as the sun, meaning if, that if you stared into it, you go blind. His hair was white like wool. And he had a tumult of water coming out of his mouth. It sounded like Niagara Falls. So loud and so thundering was his voice. And for the first chapter, John is just going, wow, wow, wow. And then God, through that voice, begins to speak to him about what he's going to do with the, the seven churches in Asia. So you've got chapter 2 and chapter 3, instructions about what the churches needed to do to change. Things are going good. I mean, John's writing it all down. And he says, this is amazing. I'm seeing Jesus like I've never seen it before. This is the highest I've ever been. This is stunning. It doesn't get any better than this. This is great. And then the start of chapter 4, God says this. Um, where you are, you're not going to be able to get what I want to give you next. So you've got to come up here. Now, I would be satisfied with the low level John got. The first level? I've never been there. Anybody seen Jesus like John saw Jesus in here? Have you ever, has he showed up like that in your devotional life? Never has he done, and never has he said, write this down for me so that I can tell the churches about it. Never, I'm not, a, I'm not an epistle writer. He hasn't revealed, I would be satisfied with John's lowest level of revelation. Never got it. And God said to John at his highest level of revelation to date, you don't have what you need. You're going to have to come up here in order to get what I want to give you next. Wherever you think you are, it's not close enough. Come. God is trying to organize his people, and this is not just an individualistic thing. It's a corporate thing. Come, let us. He's not talking to, to, to one person, two people. Another person, he's talking to a group. Of, he's talking to the people of Israel, the covenant people of God. Come, let us. Do you know God thinks about the us before he thinks about the I, the me. But as he's thinking about the us, he doesn't have to change gears in order to think about the I. He's able to have a, a panoramic view of his body to think about the all and not neglect you for one second of your life this is what distinguishes him from us took my children out to dinner when they were little and we didn't have a whole lot of money then and I had a lot of kids that's not a good combination for dinner <laughs> but just to let you know we, had seven, we have seven kids and so when we went out back in the 90's to go to McDonald's it was $80 to $100 yeah once you got all the happy meals and the toys and the drinks you spend about 6 to $7 per person. So it's nine people in the car. And then you put tax on top of that, it's 70 to $80, depending on if they got dessert. So we had to plan well about where we were going to eat. We went to Outback, it's $200. We ain't going to Outback. 
Is that happening? And I'm going. Maybe if daddy got a bonus at Christmas, we went to Outback. But we relegated our dinner appointments usually to fast food restaurants. So when it was time to go to dinner, they knew their, their, their favorite restaurant. We're going out to dinner, and everybody's saying, Burger King, uh, McDonald's, Taco Bell. And they'd all start talking at the same time. And I say, wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. One, I can't listen to you all at once. One at a time. God can listen to every part of humanity at once. All of us at once without being distracted from one against another and still hear your cry. This is the thing that makes him God. He can care for the whole without neglecting the individual. Now, in order for us to to capture what I'm trying to convey, we've got to begin to think like him. Because we work from the individual to the whole. This is how we are. God, I got to get mine. I'm telling you, I, I need help. I need some serious help. I know, I know she needs help, but, but if you could just kind of put your attention on me first, maybe I can get the bandwidth to pray for her. And, 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 and we stretch ourselves to include others in our prayer life. It's a real stretch to talk about praying for the they because we have stretched ourselves as much as we can to pray for the you. We mostly pray for the I. We think from the individual to the corporate and we have to develop the faith to get there. God thinks from the big to the small. And if we would begin to think us rather than me, oh, things would happen. You develop his heart. And no longer do you now make Christianity that which serves you, which is antithetical to everything upon which Christianity is founded. Christianity is all about giving your life away for the benefit of many. That's what Jesus did. And he had some serious things that he could hold on to if he wanted, but he chose to give it all up in order to identify with you and to save you. And and, and in the process of saving you, He saved the world. For God so loved the world. God, in in Ephesians it says he gave, Christ died for the church. And in dying for the big, he got you. And he's thinking about you every day. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, it says. Jesus trying to convey the particularness of care that God has for his people. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without his notice. How much more does he care for you? Yet, he's thinking about the whole world. And if we would begin to think about others, hear me in this. Nobody's needs would be not met. Because everybody would be thinking about how in the world can I assist somebody else? It's like the husband and wife that came to me and they were mad because they said, you know, this marriage thing is supposed to be 50-50. And I've given mine, now she needs to give hers. I mean, I, I've done what I'm supposed to do. She has to play her part. Hmm. Well, can I first start by saying you are completely wrong? I can't tell you how wrong you are. Completely, wholly wrong. He looked at me like I was crazy. I said, is your marriage a contract or a covenant? See, a contract is that which states the terms for each party to protect themselves. So if that party violates their terms, you get yours. And if you violate the terms, he gets his. And he can take you to court and sue if you won't give it to him. That's a contract. But a biblical covenant says, I'm in this for you. And even if you don't do what you're supposed to do, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do because my life is yours. That's a covenant. Said so that's what marriage is supposed to be. That's why it's not a contract. It's a covenant. 
There's no 50-50. It's 100-100. Now, if you want to live 50-50, this is where you'll wind up, in my office. If you want to live 100-100, get this. You give your life away. She gives her life away. She gets all her needs met. You get all your needs met. Not because you're taking, but because you're giving. But as long as you say 50-50, you'll get to a point where you say, I'm at 49 and I'm about to call it quits. And now she needs something from you, but she's got to take it to get it. And nobody likes things to be taken from them. You want to live like that or do you want to live the other way? Everything about Christianity is about giving your all. Wouldn't it be novel if people came to church not thinking that the worship team needed to prime their pump so they could worship? Come on, Tiff, Rob, team, make it happen. Sing the song that really makes my soul just get on fire and gives me all these goosebumps. And so I can feel it and I can have God meet me in my worship and I can get enthralled in his presence. (laughs) Work it, Tiff and Rob, work it. And Pastor Brett, I need you today to speak. I know sometimes you act like you're in my kitchen and I need you to give me one of those sermons today. I need you to speak like you're in my bedroom and talking to me about my own prayer life. Talk to me now, Pastor. I need some stuff today. I need it. Now, I'm not mad at you for feeling that way because you're coming to church in order to find something of God. Glad. But there's a maturity that you don't have yet. And that when you come to church, it's more about you giving than receiving. It's not about you having needs all the time. It's about looking at other people's needs and saying, what can I do to supply? How can I help them? That's what kingdom is about. And if everybody comes in like that, all needs are met. If everybody comes in the other way, don't know what will happen. People might walk out the same way they came in because I might not be on point. I might not. I might have a really bad sermon that day. Probably not. But I might have a really, really bad sermon. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I work too hard to do bad sermons. I study too hard. It just doesn't happen. Even my bad sermons are good. I know that. I'm with it. That is not arrogant. I'm just letting you know I work too hard and stay too much in the presence of my God to have a bad moment. But it may not hit you between the eyes like you needed to. And so I can't be your supply. If you're dependent upon me every Sunday to help you, you might not get as much help as you think you need. But if you come in ready to give. If you come in not looking for someone to meet your need, but you meeting somebody's need, you walk out full. Are you listening? This is the way Christianity works. You walk out fuller. No pun intended. (laughs) It's my last name, by the way. Us. Us. Think us. Think us. Come. Come. Let us do something. Then he gets into the posture of worship. The opening posture of worship is one that that needs to incorporate the idea of being prostrate. For those of you who don't know what that is, it is not an organ. It's a position. Prostrate means to be flat on your face before God. It's a position that we are so foreign to in Western society because we are so egalitarian. We are people that don't believe anybody needs to be bowed to. They're just human beings. In a theocracy, they understand reverence 
for the person that happens to hold an office that gives government to the people and that they are anointed by God to do so. And so when they come and bow before the king, they are committing uh, idolatry. They're giving reverence, saying, I know God works through you, and I choose to submit to that. In America, <laughs> we don't regard one person as more important than the other. Now, in some ways, that's good. In some ways, it's bad because we forget about what the, the culture of worship looks like for people. And everything about the word worship there, and you don't care about what the Hebrew word means, excuse me, what the Hebrew word sounds like, but everything about the culture of worship that's described in the word worship in the Hebrew in this passage includes the idea of being prostrate. And being prostrate is the position a person would get in as they got before God to, to make sure they amplified the difference between them and him. They got as close to the dirt as they possibly could, as low on the earth as they possibly could, to say, God, I am not even close to being like you. You are amazing. You are perfect. I'm not even, I can't be mentioned in the same conversation as you. I don't even know why you regard me, Psalmate. What is man that you take thought of him? Why are you mindful of him? He goes the wrong way intentionally. And then he blames you when things go bad. Man just doesn't think about worshiping you at all. He's thinking about getting as much as he can and holding on to that which he gets. I don't understand why you even think about us as messed up as we are. I know we're made in your image, but we have marred it so much that we don't look anything like you. Yet you have regard for us, oh God. Father, I humble myself because there's nobody like you who thinks about me like you do. Thank you, oh God. And we get low to understand that there's a difference between him and me. Prostrate. On your face. Nose to the carpet. Mouth muffled in prayer. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Learn to speak in the carpet. You are amplifying who he is and understanding who you are not. Now, we're not talking about self-loathing. not talking about hating yourself. Just talking about reality. Okay, here. We are dust. We were made from the dust. Adam was made from the dust. And God said, now that you're going to die, to dust you will return. You're, our bodies are dust. They, we're glorified dirt. Every one of us. Somebody boiled down the value of human flesh in, in, in a monetary way. You know that periodic table that you didn't understand when you took Biology 101? Gives all the elements that we know of in the universe. They broke down what the human body becomes into those periodic tables and put a value on it as, in terms of how much these things are worth. And they came up in mid-90s with a value of about a, a, a 197. I use inflation today, about 250. Not 250. $2.50. That's what our flesh is worth. We're glorified dirt. $2.50. So why would Jesus come and die for $2.50? Because there's more value than in the flesh. And that we are made in his image. 
but understanding what we are not, that we, we don't give value to ourselves, helps us at least start at the right place so we can get the right perspective about who he is and who we are not. And we cannot come into his presence demanding stuff, thinking that somehow we are entitled because we are God's gift to creation. No, we are $2.50 worth of flesh. And the only value we have is that which he gives us. And the reason we feel worth is because he died for us and gave us value. The reason we can worship it is that he teaches us to do so. The reason we can praise him is that he puts the words in our mouth. You remember what you were like before you knew him? How in the world did you change except that he changed you? You weren't trying to figure out how to make him happy. You were trying to figure out how to make you happy. What changed except he changed you? You didn't change yourself. And so he gives value to you so you can understand who you're supposed to be. But the reality is all of us are glorified dirt. And we, we understand that best when we understand what it means to get as low as possible that we might magnify who he is. He is amazing. And because he is amazing, we find ourselves in a place of being able to identify with him because we are in his image. Only because he lets us. Now, this may offend many of your ideas about humanity and that humanity is good and great and getting better. Well, after about six, seven, eight, nine millennia, we should have figured it out by now. I'm just saying, we should, if we're good and getting better, we are on a slow track. It, the, 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 the progress is imperceptible. You could make an argument, in fact, that we are worse than in the days of Noah. You can make that argument when God said, I got to start over because this thing is too corrupt. It is too messed up. Flooded the entire planet. Said, I'm not going to do it again. Just said he wouldn't flood it. He didn't say he wouldn't judge it. Just not with water. I can't see us being good and getting better. I see us getting worse. Recognizing the distinction is a privilege of our lives because that's a great place to start with understanding how great he is and how great we are not and how he is deserving of worship. Secondly, ongoing posture. The second phrase there is, come let us worship and bow down. Now, the, the, the word, we use two words for bow down, but they had one. And, 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 and that word actually means to crouch. That's included in the definition. There are many English concepts that we bring to the definition of the Hebrew word, but it means to crouch. So it's a different position than being on the ground. When you are on the ground, very little can be done by you. But now you're simply in a, in a penitent way. You're lowering yourself. And you're functioning throughout life. And the attitude is this. That whenever I come to a situation that requires a decision, I'm going to make sure that I make those circumstances in my mind bow to what the word has to say. So when I come into a moment where I'm in disagreement with my friend and, and, and I feel like cursing him out, I'm going to make the words of my mouth bow to scripture. When I find myself with a decision on whether I need to live with my boyfriend, I'm going to make that decision bow to the perfect tenets of scripture rather than me trying to figure it out myself. I live in a crouched way. When it comes to figuring out what my finances ought to do with respect to the kingdom orientation, 
and how I need to give. I'm going to make sure that my finances and the idea about what I need to do with them bow to the principles of Scripture. Crouch when I think about my resources. When I think about forgiving somebody, though they have hurt me so much and I want them to pay, they backstabbed me and it hurt. I'm going to let those feelings and emotions be dealt with by God and I'm going to make a good decision by making my mind bow to the tenets of Scripture and forgiving them as God forgave me. I'm going to live in a crouched way on Tuesday, not just Sunday. I'm going to make sure that malice and anger and bitterness are not a part of my life. I'm going to submit myself to the word of God and I'm going to live in a crouched way. I'm going to make sure that I am the best version of a husband my wife has ever seen. I'm going to make sure I'm the best version of a friend my friends have ever seen. I'm going to serve them even when I am not served. When I think they need to do something for me, I'm going to flip it and do something for them because I'm going to make sure that I bow my mind to the tenets of scripture. You live in a crouched way. Every day of your life, this is worship. This is worship. Come, let us, let us worship by including a prostrate position, a prostrate position in the beginning, and let us live in a way that is bowed. And then lastly, let us, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And kneeling is the word barach in Hebrew. And there are two words that sound a lot alike, and they're, they, are, they are almost homonyms, but they so overlaid one another in their application that in the beginning, when the Hebrew language was developed in the days of Abraham, there were two distinct words. And although you will still find two distinct words, and if you look at it in your Strong's Concordance, the cultural use boiled down, we believe, to one. And there was a word B-E-R-E-K, and then there was B-A-R-A-K. Here we see B-A-R-A-K, which means to kneel. But it also means B-E-R-E-K, which means to bless. Early in Hebrew life, you had two words, to bless and to kneel. They sounded so much alike, and they saw the benefit of one to another being almost inseparable, that it seems like culturally the two words became one because when somebody bowed on a regular basis their knee, they got blessed. And so in the Hebrew idiomatic use of language, they began to use the words together. And when somebody got blessed as a result of them going through this process of what it means to prostrate themselves on a regular basis and to live in a crouched way, God blessed them. And he blessed them with stuff abundantly. And as a result of the blessings that he gave them, it, they, were, they were weighty. Wow. And it, it got so heavy that they bowed their knee. And so they saw the application on both ends, and so they just blended the words together. And we see later in Hebrew language not two words to describe either. We see one. And here we see the one. Barak. Bend the knee, because when you bend the knee, you find yourself in a position whereby God can best bless you. And as a result of the blessings of God in your life, they, it gets so great when you live the way you should, all of a sudden you find yourself weighted down. Now the, the Bible says this, that the Lord, when he blesses a man, adds no sorrow to it, but it doesn't say he doesn't add weight. I got seven kids, they're heavy. They are heavy, heavy, heavy. I got to figure out how to pay for them. 
I got to figure out how to pastor them and care for them and, as adults and, and what it means to, to father them, these kids that got their own minds about how to live. And all of them are worshiping. But it's because we bowed under the weight and said, Lord, help. Lord, help. We're doing all we can. These kids need better parents, but they don't have them yet. Change me. The weight of my children changed me in his presence. When you begin to bow and bow your knee to kneel, oh, something happens. When you get in the place of Barak, something happens whereby in his presence, he blesses you with stuff you didn't have. And now all you want to do as a result is get back to him because you are so grateful for him making you what you were, giving you the power you did not have. It becomes this beautiful cycle of him bestowing and you offering. The psalmist says, come, let us worship like this. Let's start by understanding the distinction between him and us. Let's go through life constantly crouched, always trying to figure out the best solution from Scripture. And let's... Let's, as we receive the blessings that come as a result of living this way, let's bow. Let's not just use them for ourselves. Let's not just be happy about being blessed. Let's figure out, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Do you want me to start an orphanage? Do you want me to to help out with a a school system over here by buying the kids uh, coats and and shoes in the wintertime that may not? What would you like me to do with the money? Now, hear me. You want to go out and get a boat? Happy, take me out on it with you. I ain't mad at you. The Bible says God gives resources in Ecclesiastes so that you may enjoy them. You don't have to be austere. You just have to be balanced. God wants you to use kingdom resources for his purposes primarily. And everything else, he says, have at it. Enjoy yourself. This is the way worship should be contextualized. Not just what we do on Sunday morning, but how you live your life. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Empower and bless these dear people to live well.